0: You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Good morning. It's good to see you today uh, on Time Change Sunday. Uh, or as pastors call it, low attendance Sunday. Um, we, it is good to be here, and uh, spring break is starting uh, today as well, or this weekend, um, so uh, it is a good day to be uh, in the Lord's house. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me uh, to the book of Ruth. Uh, The Old Testament book of Ruth is where we're going to be over the next few weeks. Uh, It is early in the Old Testament. Um, I would tell you where it is, but I would have to sing a song uh, to remind myself, and uh, you don't want that, and I don't want that. Um, So Ruth chapter one uh, is where we're going to be. The book of Ruth is four chapters long, and so over the next four weeks, we're going to take one chapter a week, um, and then on week five is Easter, and we'll celebrate the resurrection. Uh, and so uh, I hope that you're making plans to be here on Easter. And not only that, but you're uh, making plans to invite people uh, to be with us. We'll have three services uh, on Easter. Uh, and we'll, we'll change them up just a little bit. Um, and I know we all love change, uh, but at 8.30, uh, 10 o'clock and 11.30 will be our three uh, service offerings. And so I hope that you're making plans um, to be here uh, and to bring someone with you. Uh, well, Ruth chapter one is where uh, we are going to be today. Uh, You know, the internet uh, is so good for so many things, uh, but there are uh, a few maybe unintended consequences that have happened uh, from uh, the the internet's proliferation or uh, from the popularity of the internet. And one of the, uh, I think one of the most dangerous things is that everyone is an expert on everything right? Uh, you can become an expert really, really quickly. I tell uh, my wife and kids all the time that I'm not a scientist. Uh, I am not a doctor, but I took biology with a lab in college, and so because of that in Google, I can diagnose any problem that you might have, right? I can tell you uh, what, uh, what ailment you might be dealing with, what problems you might be struggling with. You tell me the symptoms. I will tell you what is wrong because Google is good uh, for those things. Like I said, I'm I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor, but uh, there's some things that I remember uh, from school, some things that I learned in elementary school, in middle school, in high school, and then uh, were drilled into my head again in college. And one of those things uh, that I'm reminded of or that I remember from those science classes, from those biology classes, is the scientific method. Uh, Maybe that phrase rings a bell. Maybe I said that and your mind flashes back to that science teacher that you had in high school that you had not thought about uh, in many years, maybe several decades, Uh, and now you're gonna have a nightmare tonight because uh, of that science teacher popping back into your head. But the scientific method is a process to test a hypothesis through observation and experimentation. Now, why would you need to test a hypothesis? Because a hypothesis is a theory. It's something that might be true, it's something that could be true, but it's something that isn't necessarily true. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Ruth? See, the book of Ruth is a book all about God's faithfulness, and here's what you and I need to know and be reminded of today. God's faithfulness is not hypothetical. God's faithfulness is not a hypothesis. God's faithfulness is not a theory. God's faithfulness is settled. God's faithfulness is something that we can trust. So, As we look here at Ruth 1, we're going to see this truth. We're going to see that God's faithfulness is good. God's faithfulness can be trusted. God's faithfulness is not something that is hypothetical. Now, we are going to work our way through this entire first chapter. Uh, Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Uh, We're just going to read the first five verses uh, to get us started here in the book of Ruth. Uh, The Spirit says to us this morning, starting in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Mahalon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that your faithfulness is not a hypothesis. Father, thank you that your faithfulness isn't a theory to be tested, but it is a truth that we can build our lives on. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would teach us and you would show us and you would remind us that you are a faithful God and you always have been. And so, Father, this morning, our prayer is that as we leave, that what we just sang would be the cry of our hearts, that great is thy faithfulness. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look here in the book of Ruth, as we study this book as we study this chapter here in chapter one, well, we're going to see a few, a few different truths about this uh, faithfulness of God that we see isn't a theory, it's not h- hypothetical, and the, the first one is this, it's not so much a, uh, a truth about uh, God's faithfulness, but about our faith, and it's this, that our faith is often fickle, uh, our faith is often fickle, wouldn't it be easy, if, or wouldn't it be great if it were easy to have faith? Wouldn't it be wonderful if faith were easy? But here's what we know is that it's not always easy to walk by faith, is it? It's not always easy to live by faith. Uh, this weekend, uh, my family, we, uh, we went to Disney World and we, we rode one of the rides. And even though we knew that no, no one on this ride had ever been hurt, no one on this ride, uh, hit, hit ever, uh, it, nothing bad had ever happened to them, there was still part of it. Anna and I were talking, and I'm a little nervous to get on this ride. And I, I'm a little nervous to ride this ride, even though I'd ridden it before, even though we had experienced it before, we were a little nervous because it's not always easy to walk by faith, whether it be faith in God or faith in a Disney Imagineer or whoever it may be. But see, when faith, when our faith is in God whose faithfulness is not hypothetical, then our faith grows. Right? What makes your faith strong is not your willpower, it's the object of your faith. See, this is what Ruth is all about. God who is faithful all the time in the day-to-day lives of his people. One of the great things, one of the reasons I wanted to take some time and study this book of Ruth is one of the things that we see in it over and over and over again is that God is faithful in the mundane. God is faithful in the ordinary. You when know, we think about having faith in God and walking with faith, maybe we're tempted uh, to think that uh, our faith in God or that we only need faith for the really big things and the, the really big prayers. And what we see here in the book of Ruth is we see God showing up in some really big situations and in some really big ways, but it is always and regularly through the ordinary day to day practices of life. Now, look with me at verse 1. This book starts off saying, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, now there's the problem, right? So first, Ruth, uh, the author here, sets us, gives us a time frame. This is in the time, in the days of the judges. He says that in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Now, really, what's happening here is this is a, a compounding problem. See, the, the days, that, that time of the judges uh, was marked by things like violence and idolatry and wars. In fact, several times through the book of Judges, the, the author will say uh, that during these days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a bad time to be alive when hey, you're not doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so you've got that problem, but then the compounding problem is that there is a famine in the land. And so we're, we're introduced to this family, this Israelite family who lives in Bethlehem. And before we even know their names, we see that their faith is fickle. It says that a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now they went to sojourn in this country of Moab uh, because the famine had struck and they believed that uh, there would be more food, they would be better taken care of in Moab than they are in Bethlehem. See, they were doubting God's faithfulness and his promises to his people. Now this, is a, this would have been a rejection of all that Yahweh, all that the God of Israel had promised and all that his people had walked according to or tried to walk according to. See, Moab was the home of the Moabites. The Moabites were a people who were born in rebellion and who continued to live in rebellion. The Moabites traced their lineage, traced their ancestry back to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. These were people who were well-known to be ones who did not fear God and who did not walk according to Yahweh's purposes, but worshiped their own gods and walked according to their own ways. And so they they leave Bethlehem, which ironically literally means house of bread. That'll be important here in a minute. They, They leave Bethlehem to go into sojourn in Moab because here's what they believe. They believe that God can't take care of them in Bethlehem so they can forge their own way. They can make their own future in this other land, in the far country, in Moab. And look what happens, look at verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now, here is some more irony. Elimelech means my God is king. And yet Elimelech, who's named my God is king, refuses to believe that his god is faithful. So the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but then tragedy strikes. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons, they they take Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, right? Uh, uh, You read that and it looks like Oprah, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahalon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So they they go, they leave Bethlehem, they leave the house of bread, they they leave the house of plenty, and they go to Moab where they think life is going to get better, and instead for the 10 years that they live in Moab, they are struck by problems. They are struck by tragedy. So the famine is still going on. There's still famine in the land, but then Elimelech, the, the patriarch of the family, what happens to him? He dies. But But Naomi's okay because she has her her two sons. Uh, Those two sons, those two names that are kind of hard to say, Uh, Mehalon and Chilion, they mean weak and sick. So these two sons, who mean weak and sick, what happens? Well, they die. And so Ruth is now left with no husband no sons. If you're familiar with the ancient world at the time, this is bad news for her because now she has no one to provide for her. She has no one to take care of her. But the problem isn't just that she doesn't have a husband and she doesn't have two sons, but then she also has these daughter-in-laws. But Naomi begins to hear of God's faithfulness, that God has kept his word to his people, Israel, to his people in Bethlehem. And so she decides that she needs to go back. Look with me here at verse six. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Don't say that, right? That's, don't say that. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Naomi hears this news that God has been faithful, and she makes plans to return to Bethlehem. Now, uh, this phrase of to return, or returning, or go back, it's the same phrase all through this first chapter. It's used 12 times through this first chapter, and that same phrase is used in the prophets to speak of repentance. And so what you have here is you, you have the, the writer of Ruth, you have them using that phrase on purpose, right? Using that phrase to connote that, that Ruth's return to Bethlehem, Ruth's return to home is really a repentance. It's a, a turning back to what she had lost. So even, even in seeing the Lord's provision, even seeing the Lord's faithfulness, Naomi's faith is still fickle. She tells the daughter-in-laws that they must return to their homes and to their gods because they won't be welcomed in Bethlehem. They're Moabites, they're Gentiles. They wouldn't be welcome among God's people. But then the other problem is they wouldn't find husbands because no self-respecting Israelite is going to marry a Moabite woman. And and even if Ruth could, if she were, or Naomi, even if she were to find a husband and to, to have children, and they, those children turned out to be sons. Then uh, Ruth and Orpah would have to wait for those sons to become of age, and then they could be married. And so really what Naomi is telling her daughters in law is that there is no reason for you to return. There are only bad things waiting for you in Bethlehem. And so Orpah listens, and she leaves, but what does Ruth do? Ruth clings to Naomi. Now, now here's Naomi's problem. Naomi has a deficient view of God. She has a weak view of God. Look at verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, here's what was happening to Naomi. Her bitterness was driving her view of God. And this is a dangerous place to be, and this is a place that that isn't just Naomi that goes there, but I think all of us have been there, or or all of us go there if we're not careful, that that we allow our circumstances to make us bitter, and then we allow that bitterness to drive what we see about God, to drive what we believe about God, to drive what we say is true about God. See, for, for Naomi, suffering meant that God had forgotten her. See, here was the problem with Naomi. Her view of God's faithfulness was hypothetical. For Naomi, God was only faithful if things were good. If things were bad, then it wasn't just that God was not faithful, but it's that God was bad. Because if you notice through this passage, Naomi never says that God isn't in control. No, instead, Naomi says that God has dealt bitterly with me. God has not been kind to me. See, this is an easy assumption to make. But what we need to remember is that suffering is often a sign, not of God's absence, but of his activity. See, what Naomi was completely missing was that in Naomi's suffering, where is she driven back to? She's driven back to her people and to her God. Rather, the Lord had used this suffering to drive her back to exactly where she needed to be. Her husband, Elimelech, had led them out of the land. He he had led them away from Bethlehem. He he had led them essentially into sin. He, He had led them to doubt and to forget and to rebel against God's faithfulness. And so now what does the Lord do? The Lord uses suffering to bring Naomi home. The the Lord uses suffering uh, to give Naomi grace. If we're not careful, then what we will do is we will misconstrue suffering as God's abandonment. We'll we'll misconstrue suffering as God's judgment or God's punishment, but what if suffering is God's grace? Because see, it's in suffering that we learn how to long for glory. When life is good, it's hard to long for heaven. But when life is painful, and when we experience brokenness, and when we feel the weight that this body is wasting away, when we feel the weight that sin is all around us, then we can say with our brother John, even so come Lord Jesus. When did John get this vision of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ after he had been exiled onto a rock. Right? John gets the most of Jesus through suffering. And so we would be wrong to believe that God can't work in suffering. In fact, what I think is that oftentimes God does his best work in our suffering. Right? Oftentimes, God does his best pain in our suffering that he looks and he sees the problem that we have. And oftentimes, problems cannot be removed without pain, right? No doctor looks at you and says, we need to cut that out of you, but don't worry, it's not gonna hurt. No, no doctor looks at you and says, hey, we've gotta do surgery, but here's the good news. We're not gonna use any anesthesia, right? We're not gonna numb it. Or we're just gonna rip the wisdom teeth out. We're we're, we're just going to do whatever it may be done. No, every doctor says, look, there's a problem, and that problem has to be removed, and that removal is going to cause pain. In the same way, the Lord uses suffering to take that problem. Right? He uses suffering to take that idol. He, he uses suffering to remove that sin. And so we see here in this passage that our faith is often fickle, but here's the good news. Next, you see that our God is always steady. Our God is always steady. Our, our faith may be fickle, but he is, God is always steady. His faithfulness isn't hypothetical. It's not a theory, it's settled and secure. We've already said Naomi never doubts God's presence. She just doesn't think that God is good. She just doesn't think that God is faithful. Look at verse 15. And she said, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her God. She's speaking to Ruth now. And then she says, Return after your sister in law. You can almost feel the bitterness in those words, can't you? She urges Ruth to return to her people and to her gods. Here's the implication. Naomi believes that Ruth's people and false gods will be kinder than Yahweh. She she believes that those false gods of the Moabites will provide and protect and do more than Yahweh will, not because Yahweh can't, but because Yahweh isn't good. But in verses 16 and 17, Ruth makes this commitment to Naomi. Look look here at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Maybe you're familiar with those verses. Oftentimes, they're read at weddings. Most people don't realize that they're pledging to their mother-in-laws, right, Uh, rather than uh, to their husbands or to their wives. But here, Ruth makes this commitment. She commits not only to her mother-in-law, but also to Yahweh. Did, Did you see that? For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She commits to Naomi's people and to Naomi's God. Here's the thing, Ruth's great faith in Naomi's God translates into great hope for Ruth, right? That that Ruth is seeing and hearing reports about what Naomi's God can do, right? That in the midst of this famine, that no one has food, no one has bread, but Bethlehem, the house of bread, what do they have? They have bread, right? They have food. Look at verse 18. Look at Naomi's response. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. She's exhausted by Ruth's stubbornness. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've got that person who, they just won't take no for an answer. Maybe you're like me, you've got that child that just won't take no for an answer and they eventually wear you down. All right, I'm just not talking anymore. I'm not not giving in any more. Naomi is exhausted by Ruth. That Ruth won't just turn around and leave. Naomi doesn't want her to go with her. She doesn't want her to go to Bethlehem. She doesn't trust the people of God. She doesn't trust God. And so she's telling Ruth, look, just stay, right? Just leave me alone. Go back to your people. Go to your mother. Go to your father. Go to your brothers. Go to your sisters. Go to your gods. And Naomi says, no way. Where you go, I will go. The only thing that's gonna separate us is death. Now, how does this show that God is steady? If you notice, the the only time that God has been mentioned so far in this book has been to accuse him of being unfaithful. The only time God has been mentioned has been to accuse him of not being good. But see, the entire book of Ruth is about God's unrelenting faithfulness. See, Naomi and her family, they end up in Moab. Why? Because of rebellion. They failed to trust that God was good and that God was faithful. And yet again, the Lord uses suffering to move Naomi, but this time he uses suffering not to to push her away. And he didn't use suffering before to push her away. That was what Elimelech and their family had chosen. But instead this time he uses suffering to move Naomi. And this time it leads her to repentance. Naomi sees God's faithfulness to his promises. She sees God's faithfulness to his people. And so she returns home. God uses the famine to bring Naomi back to himself. And he also uses this famine to lead Ruth, who is a Gentile, to him, to see that he is good. You see, often in the middle of suffering, we we miss God's hand. However, we eventually learn that he was working the entire time. See, God's never absent in our suffering. Maybe, Maybe this morning, maybe you were dealing with the most intense season of suffering that you have ever walked through. Maybe it's a physical suffering. Maybe it's an emotional suffering. Maybe it's family, whatever it is. And and in that suffering, you might be tempted to believe that God isn't there. You might be tempted to believe that God isn't good. You might be tempted to believe that God just doesn't care. But here's what we've got to know is that oftentimes God uses suffering to kill our idols and to give us more of him. This is the story of Naomi and Ruth. That God used suffering to kill their self-dependence. God used suffering to kill their independence. He used suffering to take their idols and replace those idols with faith in him. But through their suffering, Naomi and Ruth said, we don't need the idols. At this point, it's just Ruth, right? But, But Naomi is coming. At this point, Ruth says, we don't need the idols. We don't need the false gods. We need the God of Israel. We need the God of Yahweh. We need the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. We need the God who keeps his word, right? We need a faithful God, not a little idol. And so Ruth is compelled to go and to see this faithfulness that God has worked to see this faithfulness that God has done. And so we see that our God is always steady. Finally, we see this, that our God is always good. Our God is always good. He's always working for our good. His his faithfulness isn't hypothetical. It is certain. And this last section, we really, we, we see this picture of God's goodness in action. Look at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So Naomi and Ruth, they they travel back. They finally make it back to Bethlehem. And look at the response. It says the whole town was stirred. Now that, that stirring could be one of two things. It could be that they're stirred with anger because Ruth had left and now she's come back and they're not happy to see her. It could be that they're stirred with joy. Which is it? Well, there's something lost in translation here. The way that this phrase is written in Hebrew, it it literally means joyous shouting and happy conversation. That Naomi, who had left, she had been gone, it tells us earlier in chapter one, for 10 years. She'd been gone for 10 years. And what happens when she comes back? What do the people do? They celebrate. Right, they throw a party. What I've got to believe is that Ruth had or Naomi had not been forgotten about. Instead, the people had been praying that Naomi would come home. The people had been interceding, had been going before Yahweh, asking, the "Lord, keep Naomi safe, keep her secure, bring her home." And then, what does He do? He answers the prayer. Right? What does He do? He brings Naomi home. And what do the people do? Joyous shouting. And happy conversation. Really what Ruth is, this first chapter, it's a picture of a prodigal, right? This is not the prodigal son of Luke 15. This is the prodigal daughter of Ruth one, right? If you remember Luke 15, the prodigal son, what does he do? He tells his father, I want all of my inheritance now. I want you to bless me now. And then he goes to the far country. He goes and he squanders his inheritance away. And then he comes back willing to sleep with the pigs and eat what the pigs eat. And instead, what happens? The father doesn't just stand on the porch and wait for him to come home. What does he do? He runs, right? He goes after the prodigal son and embraces him and throws a party and brings him home. Here, what we have is we have Ruth and her family. They have said, God has not been faithful to me now, so he's not gonna be faithful to me later. So what do they do? They leave. They leave and they go to the far country and in the far country, they lose everything, right? They squander away all that they had. Elimelech dies. Her two boys die. And so then she comes back. And what happens? Israel does not say, Ruth, or, Naomi, I can't believe you would do that. What do they say? Let's celebrate because the daughter who was lost is now home. The daughter who was lost has now come back. Upon her return, she's greeted in an unexpected way. And you might think that Naomi is going to celebrate this. That Naomi's going to be excited about this. But instead, her response is just as unexpected as their response. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, why would she want to change her name? Well, there's two reasons. One... Naomi literally means pleasant and lovely. And so she she tells the people, she says, don't call me pleasant and lovely, call me bitter. Don't don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Call me sour. She instructs them not, not to call her Naomi, instead call her Mara, because she says the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. If we keep reading here in verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Isn't it interesting that Naomi never takes any personal responsibility? She she never says to call me Mara because I rebelled and now I'm reaping the rewards. She, she never says, call me Mara because I doubted God's faithfulness. No, she says, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Call me bitter because the Lord has not loved me. He, he has not been good to me. Naomi is convinced that God has done all of this for no reason. See, here's the thing. Sin often blinds us to God's grace sin often blinds us to our own sin, right? It's funny the way sin works. Sin blinds us to who we are, and it blinds us to who God is. That's what had happened to Naomi, right? Naomi couldn't see her sin. She couldn't see that she had rebelled. She couldn't see that she deserved any kind of judgment, any kind of punishment, but she also couldn't see that even in spite of her sin, the Lord had brought her home. Even in spite of her sin, the Lord had brought her back to this place where she needed to be to experience his goodness and his grace and his love. See, Naomi had returned to Bethlehem precisely because of God's grace and faithfulness, and yet she couldn't see it. She couldn't understand it. She she couldn't comprehend it. It wasn't even on her radar. The, The world is experiencing famine, but Yahweh has blessed His people, look at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. In other words, they came to the house of bread at the beginning that the bread was being made. Right, that they left a land of famine and where do they come to? They come to the house of bread. They come to the place where God is going to bless them with food. See, what starts with famine, it ends with fullness. See, God was and is and had been and always been faithful. Now, this chapter ends with Naomi being bitter. Her family's dead. (laughs) She had to return to Bethlehem. Ruth will not leave her alone. She she has this daughter in law that she doesn't even want to be with her. There's probably some shame that she has, right? In a very real way, Ruth is a constant reminder to Naomi of her sin, right? In a very real way, Ruth is a constant reminder to Naomi that she had left the land, she had left the house of bread, and instead, what did she have? She had a dead husband and dead sons and this daughter-in-law who was a Moabite. So this chapter ends and Naomi is bitter. Bitterness can feel like it will last forever at times, doesn't it? And here's the thing about bitterness. Sometimes we want it to. Sometimes we want bitterness to last because bitterness feels good. Our bitterness feels better maybe than forgiveness or than grace. Naomi is bitter because sin had wrecked her life. And so she changes her name because she wants her response to her sin to be her identity. She wants everyone to know, look, yeah, I'm bitter, all right? I'm bitter because the Lord has not been kind to me. He has dealt bitterly with me. Today, it would be like someone changing their Facebook profile picture, Right? Uh, Look, I'm bitter because God has been bitter to me. I'm gonna change my name. I'm gonna update my status. I'm gonna post a a weird picture on Instagram because I want everyone to know just how bitter I am and how bitter the Lord has been to me. She wants her identity to be tied up with what her sin has done. She, She wants her identity to be her sin. But see, God's faithfulness gives us something so much better than identity rooted in sin. See, the same faithfulness of God that brought Naomi back to Bethlehem sent Jesus to the cross. See, for some of us, we're tempted to make our identity all kinds of other things. We're tempted to make our identity what we can do. We're tempted to make our identity what we have done. Maybe maybe you're, you're tempted to make your identity sins from your past. Or maybe even sins from your present. But if you are in Christ, if you've experienced the faithfulness of God, then what you know is that there is no better identity than forgiven. There is no better identity than saved. If we were to turn forward to 1 Corinthians 6, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul runs through this list of sins. And you know, oftentimes when he runs through these list of sins, they're connected in some way, but this list of sins is just like every sin you can imagine. He says in murderers and idolaters and swindlers and this sin and that sin and this sin and that sin. And do you know how he ends that discussion? He says, and such were some of you. But you have been washed, you have been cleansed, and you have been saved. See, Naomi's bitterness was leading her to want to put her identity in her sin rather than in a God who could save. And you and I, we may be tempted to put our identity in a sin rather than our God who can save, or we might be tempted to put our identity in other things, right? Like I put my identity in the fact that, that I'm a Gator fan, or I put my identity in the fact that I'm an American, or, or I put my identity in the fact that, that I have kids, or I put my identity in the fact that, that I'm a pastor, or I put my identity in the fact that I do this and I do that, and none of those things might be sin, but if I'm putting my identity, my full and final identity in those things, then they are sin. Right? The most important thing about me is not that I am married and that I have four kids or that I'm a pastor or that I'm a Gator fan or that I'm, a, I'm an American. The most important thing about me is that I am in Christ, right? That I have been saved. And the most important thing about you is that you are in Christ and that you have been saved and you have been forgiven and there's nothing that can change that. But here's the thing, potentially, the worst thing that could be said about you is that you are apart from Christ. The most dangerous thing that could be said about you is that you are rebelling against Christ. You're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and fullness in a sin which only leads to death. But the good news is, is that we have a God whose faithfulness is not hypothetical. Hypothetical. And we have a God whose faithfulness has brought you here today. We have a God whose faithfulness has brought us to this point. Just because we don't see God doesn't mean he isn't working. We can always trust that he is faithful. And it's his faithfulness that has brought us to this place. It's his faithfulness that has brought you to the seat that you are in right now. See, in Romans chapter five, Paul tells us that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. In Ruth one, we see this in action. We see God's kindness leading Naomi to repentance. We see God's kindness leading Ruth to repentance. We see God's kindness leading Naomi and Ruth to faith. And so perhaps this morning, maybe maybe God's kindness has brought you to this place to lead you to repentance so that you, would, you, you wouldn't trust in anything else, that, that you wouldn't find your identity in anything else, but instead, maybe beginning today, you would find your identity in a God who saves and a God who forgives and a God who takes you from famine and leads you to fullness. Maybe, maybe this morning you walked in here and you just feel empty, you feel hopeless. Maybe this morning, you've been looking for satisfaction. You've been looking for hope. You've been looking for joy in that relationship. You've been looking for joy. You've been looking for hope in that thing. You've been looking for it in that activity. You've been looking for it in that job. You've been looking for it in those people. And if you're honest with yourself, then today you would say, Ethan, I feel empty. I feel like I have been walking through a spiritual famine. Here is what you need to know. It's not that you feel like you've been walking through a spiritual famine. You have been walking through a spiritual famine. And yet today, the Lord brings you to fullness, right? He brings you to a place where you can be satisfied. He brings you to a place where you can experience and you can find joy. And so instead of being like Naomi, who wanted to rest and sit and build her identity on her bitterness, Maybe this morning, you need to rest and sit and build your identity on a God who saves. You need to rest and build your identity on a God who forgives. And in that forgiveness, you can find joy. If you need to talk to someone about what that looks like, at the end of the service, you can go right out those doors and you'll see those green banners that say next steps. There's people there who would love to talk with you. There will be people down front at the end of the service. They've got hello shirts on. They would love to talk with you about this God who gives forgiveness and joy and grace. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, I pray that for those who, who maybe they walked in today feeling dry, feeling like they are in the famine. Maybe, maybe they, they came in this morning and they didn't even have the vocabulary or the language to say what they were feeling, but maybe now they know exactly what's happening. Maybe they, they understand and they see that they're, they're walking through this famine. And maybe they've got fullness everywhere else. Maybe they've got fullness, they're experiencing success and all of the good things that this life can offer, and yet they are walking, feeling empty inside. Or maybe there are those who, who they've come in this morning and and they, they're they feeling that that famine in every spot, that dryness in every area of their life. God, I pray that you would work and that you would be near to them and they would know your grace. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.